I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 11. As we pick up and continue, we'll be reading verses 20 through 30, or through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. Thank you for this passage and for what it teaches us about ourselves, our predicament, you and your sovereignty and us and our responsibility and the free offer of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to give us rest. Grant that in this time we would indeed hear your voice in this passage. It's in the Lord's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in summertime, and summertime makes me think of when I was a boy and at camp, at scout camp in particular, and one of the fun things to do if you've ever been associated with the scouts is land navigation. Land navigation with the Boy Scouts is, is fun, and you learn how to use a lot of tools. You learn how to use a compass. And believe it or not, a compass is for more than simply pointing north, okay? Uh, you learn how to use a compass, you learn how to use a topographical map, 
And then there's a, a third tool you need. You, you can't actually do land navigation very well if you just have a compass. And even if you just have the map, you have to be really, really good to use the two of them without this third important tool that, that connects the map to the compass. You know what it's called? A protractor. What? I had that in geometry class, a protractor. You need a protractor because that's what converts the angles on the bearing of the compass to the directional on the map so you can actually plot and chart a course. I thought I learned land navigation very well until I joined the army and I was expected to do it under duress and under, under the cover of darkness in the woods. And let's just say my skills were found wanting. And, uh, but I know enough about land nav to know the basics. And, and here's what I do know. When you're going to plot, plot a choice, you have to know, first of all, where you're trying to go. If you don't have your destination, then you will go anywhere, right? Isn't that self-evident? That if you're going to plot a course somewhere, if you're going to plan a trip somewhere, you have to know where you're going. And so using that wisdom in life, I really love the practice of, of backward planning. Are you familiar with that concept? Backward planning? I, I hope you are. Even if you're not familiar with it, most of us utilize it in the morning. Or actually, we utilize it at night. Uh, when, when we are faced with the question, what time do I have to get up in the morning? And unless you have screaming children who are going to do all the waking for you and you don't even need to bother with a schedule because they are your schedule. For most of us, though, that question is predicated on the answer, well, what time do I have to be at work? Okay, so you would say, I have to be at work at nine o'clock. And so then you would say, okay, in reasonable driving conditions, how long does it take me to drive there? Okay, it's a, it's a, for me, it's a, it's a 10 minute drive. And because I'm me, I'll factor in a five minute cushion, uh, just so that way I'm not late. Okay, so 15 minutes to drive. Okay, so that's backed up to 8.45. How long will it take me to get to the point of being ready to leave once I've woken up? And I know me. I like to roll around in bed. The, the days of hearing someone bang trash can lids and I jump out of the bed are over. Right? I like to roll around in bed and stretch and moan and groan and get up and drink some water, go to the bathroom, take a shower you know, make my coffee. I like to have a leisurely morning. So I know for me that no less than, I need 45 minutes at least, preferably an hour. So I like to give myself that hour. So I'm at, I'm at 8.45 since I have a 15-minute drive to work at 9, and I know it's going to take me an hour. So that backs it up to 7.45. That's what time I have to get up in the morning to do all that I need to do to be at work at nine. Backward planning. 
Doing things in reverse is remarkably helpful. I, I love those, those mazes on the back of cereal boxes. And I have long ago learned that it is remarkably more efficient to start at the end point and, and trace your way through the maze backwards. Am I cheating? No, I'm working smarter, not harder. Okay? When we go on a trip up to Montana, or perhaps I'm thinking already about study leave and the plans we got to make in November to go to South Dakota. I love going to the Black Hills for study leave. Okay, we, we don't just jump in the car and go. We plan. And you plan, okay, this is where we're going to. How long will it take us to get there? And un unless you want to be at the mercy of whatever hotel just happens to be along the way in some podunk town, you've got to plan your stops. Now, all of this sounds pretty basic, and I hope you're going, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. That's what, that's what any semi-responsible adult does. Duh. Perfect. Now we're on the same page. We have a goal in mind as a church. We have a goal in mind as Christians. And I have a goal in mind as a pastor. We're trying to get you to a place. We're trying to get our church to a place. We are trying to chart a course to get us from here to there. And as we go through our Christian ministry, as we go through the ministry of the word and open up God's uh, holy word to us, every now and then there comes along a passage like this that enables us to check our azimuth, to make sure we're pointed in the right direction, that the degree bearing or heading on our compass is aligned with the map so that we are in fact walking in the direction we should be walking to get to the destination we're trying to get to. And so just as a heads up for me, my ministerial objective and I'm going to backward plan off this and then show you how this passage ties in. Where am I trying to get you? Heaven. I want you to go to heaven when you die. Okay? So heaven when you die and it's precisely you go to heaven when you die because you are going to die. Unless the Lord comes first, but it's been appointed unto man once to die. That's God's word. Okay, so most of you, all of you are going to die. And so that means that given the reality that you're going to die and that you're going to be in heaven, so then what must I do back when plan off of that if I want you to go to heaven? Well, I must then prepare you to die. And, and I've said, and it sounds kind of morbid, but I hope you see the, the, the scriptural logic behind it. My ministry, the ministry of any minister, is to prepare you to die. And preparing you to die involves at least two things. One, because Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, every one of us will. 
And the Lord himself, just a few chapters ago, has warned us that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will be saved. He just told us that. So, so preparing you to die means, first of all, one, I want you to stand in the judgment. I, I don't want you to be the, one of the ones to whom the Lord Jesus says, you are not mine, I never knew you. I want you to stand in the judgment. But, but more than that, to prepare you to die means preparing you in such a way that you see dying as gain. Like Paul does. To die is gain for Paul. Do you, do you hear that? Dying is gain. So I don't want you to go through life so satisfied with what you have here. And so, so earthly minded in your orientation and focus that you, you're, you're smart enough to know that you got to say heaven is better. But, but yet in your volitions, you see death as nothing but the loss of everything you love. The loss of the people and the relationships and, and, and the activities that you love so that Jesus becomes almost, I don't know, a consolation prize for having had, had to die. I don't want that for you. I want you to see heaven as gain. And that everything you've experienced thus far, while good, pales in comparison to the great that is before you. So if you are prepared to stand in the judgment, and if you are prepared to see dying as gain, then you're ready to die. And that's glorious. But, but I can't get you to the point of standing in the judgment and, and, and seeing dying as gain unless right now, right now I have you progressively living in such a way that you will see heaven as gain. That you will long for it. In other words, even now I need you to be living out your great purpose in life, which is, according to our shorter catechism, first to glorify God. In the, your life, with your life, are you, are you magnifying the name of Jesus? Are you faithfully testifying to that which is true? Do you seek to make him look good, so to speak? Do you, do you live in such a way that you testify by your life that his kingdom is better, greater? Now it's possible to, to think of glorifying God in the, in the sense of the doing of keep, and keeping of commandments. But the other half of our great purpose is, it's not just glorifying God, it's glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because if you engage in all the duties without any of the delight, it's a legalistic drudgery. And you have to understand that the Bible teaches that what heaven is it's the clarification, the intensification, and the enlargement and enhancement of a beholding of God and, a, and of an enjoyment of the relational 
communion with your Savior that you have now. It isn't like you don't have this now and then you will have it then. It's, it's the intensification and enlargement of a relationship that exists now. So if you don't love and enjoy God now, what makes you think you're going to find him interesting later? And so in order for you to be in heaven, I got to help you stand in the judgment. I got to help you prepare to die. But if you're going to do that, you've, you've got to be living and growing in this now. But you won't do that. You won't see that. What, what, what is there to delight in about God unless you stand in awe and amazement of all that he has done for you? And unless you are captivated by all that he has promised to you? And so we have to continually Make sure that we are explaining and showing and demonstrating and reflecting upon and appropriating the glorious realities of everything that has taken place for us and all the marvelous wonders of what has been promised to us. But it doesn't matter how amazing the work of Christ for us might be. It doesn't matter how brilliant the promises of God might be to us. We, we, won't, we won't really reckon them amazing if we don't, before that, understand how hopeless we are without it. How desperate our situation is without it. And so we regularly have to remind how wicked we are, how undeserving of the good gifts of God we are, so that we can then be prepared to be in amazement. And so we have to explain we desperately are in need of Christ. But before you can even be expected to take seriously God's diagnosis, before you will then listen to the glorious good news, you must first realize that God indeed is a God of consequence. If your view of God is such that he is your, that he's just a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic being who just wants you to prosper, then you will not take God seriously. You will not take what he says seriously. And the rest of it that flows from it will be nonsense to you whenever you don't think that it attends towards your prosperity. And so we see from this picture, my endpoint desire for you is heaven. And it starts with taking God seriously. Take God seriously, and there's a number of waypoints along the way to get us there. Does that make sense? And so passages like this come along. 
And they're very helpful for us because they beautifully and succinctly remind us of the basics of what we could call mere Christianity or basic Christianity. Don't, don't t- get turned sideways about some of these some of the phraseology, understand that here you see the gospel in a nutshell outlined for us. And the gospel covers these points. So to, to the matter of taking God seriously, we have verses 20 through 24 in the woes. The people of many of these towns, including Capernaum, the home base of Jesus in his Galilean ministry, they've heard his teaching. They've in large part followed him. Matthew to this point has stressed the largeness and the excitedness of the crowds. But yet, Jesus here indicates there had been remarkably little repentance. They loved the show. They loved the excitement of seeing Jesus kind of, I don't know, stick it to the man with his teaching. They loved the shock and awe scandal of seeing Jesus teaching something that was at odds with, with, with the establishment. I mean, they loved the controversy of it. And they wanted more of it. They did not take God and his son seriously. And what does Jesus say to this? Whoa. The pronouncement of of mourning that comes upon the announcement of the declaration of judgment. It wouldn't. It would be worse for them than even for Sodom. And everybody knew Sodom is wicked. Everybody knows that, that it's a byword for debauched immorality that receives the judgment of God. But yet here the Son of God is saying it would be worse for them than for Sodom. And why is that? Because Sodom had very little light. They did not have A prophet come among them, proclaiming the word. They did not have a protracted season of repentance. There were no signs and wonders. They were judged and destroyed on the basis of their violation of the natural law of God written on everyone's heart. And here these people had been the recipients of divine blessing and mercy to have the word preached and have the miracles performed and still they did not believe. Now this passage right here bursts a bubble about Jesus. We've talked about how there's many in our society who will latch on to some facet of Jesus's person or personality or ministry and and, and they think he's a righteous dude or something like that. Okay, so Jesus here shows that the miracles and all of the works that he had done and all the things that he had done 
had not been done for mere humanitarian reasons. I'm going to sit there. If you think that Jesus just healed people because he had a compulsion, to, he couldn't sit with people not feeling happy, you're wrong. What Jesus indicates here is that the works he had performed in support of the words he had uttered were intended to lead to repentance. Jesus was not simply a humanitarian. Jesus was not seeking the flourishing of unbelievers as unbelievers. Too many people today think of somehow the work of Christ is wrapped up in helping unbelievers flourish. Wrong. In the common grace of our Lord, it suits his divine purposes that unbelievers oftentimes flourish and build the civilization that create the cradle in which his people exist. But he does not ever pronounce blessing upon wickedness. Jesus comes and speaks and works that they might repent. Why? Because apart from it, look at the example of Sodom. They were destroyed. So in these woes here, verses 21, 20 through 24, we see the reason we need to have Christ come amongst us at all is we are damned apart from it. We will be judged because we walk as those who need repentance, which means we walk as rebels. We walk as traitors. And even though the moral law of God is written on our hearts just as much as it was on the hearts of every person who lived in Sodom, we are enemies, enemies with God. And we need his work in us. And that leads us to the second section of this passage. Verses 25 through 27 in which you see the sovereign son. These three verses showcase the sovereignty of God to hide and disclose knowledge at his discretion, at his will. And it begins by asserting the sovereignty of the Father. But then it asserts the sovereignty of the Son when it says that the Father has given all things, in verse 27, to the Son. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father and Jesus adds that he has the discretion of whom to reveal it. So we see a sovereign God who in his sovereignty owes no man anything. And there's a desperate need on us to know the knowledge we are to know if we are to be saved. And we see Christ squarely in the middle of it. No one can know the Father except through the Son. And I don't want you to get sidetracked by any other detail than that. If you look at verses 25 through 27 and see anything other than the absolute centrality and necessity of Christ, you are, being, you are looking at, the, at, at weeds instead of at the great trees. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this passage 
hammers that home. You cannot know God. You cannot worship God. You cannot have access to God unless you come through the Son because access to the Father comes through the Son. And so this points then to Jesus. The limelight is on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who even then was before the crowd conducting his ministry and who now reigns from the right hand of the Father. And what does this sovereign Lord say in response to our need? We hear the free offer of the gospel in verses 28 to 30, do we not? He opens his arms wide. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, that concept of rest is so important. Okay, there's, there's a great biblical theology of rest. Going back as far as Exodus, when, it's a, when, when you basically see a, a battle of the gods, so to speak, you have the God of Pharaoh that is, and, 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 and Yahweh. And slavery to Pharaoh looks like toil. And thus in the Exodus account, the Lord continually contrasts the toil that is theirs in the land of bondage with the rest that he offers. And we see that the promised land itself becomes a picture of that rest. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author picks up that great discussion about rest that is ours. A ceasing from our toil and specifically, that toil is the, the routine and the, of trying to please God through our merits. Trying to earn favor. Because it all comes by grace. And Jesus invites us, come to me and I will give you that rest. So here we see the, the core of the gospel right here in these three parts. Our desperate need pointing us to the exclusivity of Christ and the offer to come to him, lay down, lay down your burdens and come to Jesus and take my yoke upon you because it's light. And he will give you the rest you are so desperately needing. The peace with God that will then flood your existence and make it possible for you to say, the world behind me the cross before. That will make it possible for you to go through life happy with God's blessings, but still, in a sense, uncontent, looking forward to the city to come so that when it comes to be your day to die, you won't go, pity me, pity me. You'll say, Jesus, I'm ready. And that's what I want for you. And if you don't know Jesus, that's the starting point. You, you, you can't have the Father without the Son. So if there's any sitting here, and maybe you're, 
your heart is just heavy. Maybe, maybe you feel the tension in your chest even now as you're just trying so hard. Turn to Jesus. Lay, lay that burden down. And take his yoke upon you because he's gentle and lowly of heart and he will receive you. Jesus doesn't turn any away who come to him in, in genuine repentance and faith. Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for passages like this that point us to the gospel, that focus us on your son, that warn us of our future if we persist in repentance, and that offer us the hope of eternal life and of reconciliation and of rest. Jesus, grant that by your spirit we would be kept safe in the way and that we would stay on the correct bearing and follow the azimuth to our destination. Thank you for marking out the trail. It's in your name we pray, O oh Lord. Amen.